Hi there, I'm Pastor Rod Parsley, and I sure want to thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm the senior pastor of World Harvest Church, where we love God and love people, and I hope you'll be inspired by today's message. Now, for more great content and lots of updates, I'd love to connect with you online at rodparsley.com. But right now, let's head into today's episode. Exodus uh, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, knowing and understanding, realizing we are here today on Ash Wednesday where we are preparing ourselves for seven weeks leading up to the celebration of Easter on Passover. So we go back to the beginning this beginning of Passover, a type and a shadow given to us to signal, to signify something that was yet to come, given to us for an example of what should come. Exodus 12, verse three. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the 10th day of the month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Your lamb, verse five, shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Verse seven, and they shall take of the blood, somebody just whisper, thank God for the blood. You shall strike it upon the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the eternally self-existent one, the Lord. Verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. If I might have your attention just for a few moments, I I have been working rather diligently over the past 18 to 24 months because the Holy Spirit got me alone in a quiet place. And sometimes you must spend time alone until you're not alone anymore. Has anybody ever been alone and then you weren't alone anymore? Come on, some of you haven't lingered long enough, tarried long enough, waited long enough. When you were alone, you, you left too early right before 
an invisible visitor made his arrival into your sequestration. God wants to get you alone sometimes. And he said to me in that quiet time, he said, you are required. He didn't leave it an option. You are required to draw a generation back to the foot of the cross. Ah, weighty, weighty declaration to me, and so it is, that for the last 18 to 24 months I have been scouring, getting ready to release after Silent No More and after Culturally Incorrect and then after Living on Our Heads, New York Times bestsellers, I, I have made a departure. And in my departure, I am making a renaissance. You might say that I'm going back to the beginning of it all. I, I think that our culture and our nation has to have a divine reversal. We have to have a divine drawing back to where we started. And so at the beginning of these seven weeks, seven anointings, which I will share with you momentarily where we're going to take that journey, I, I would be remiss if I didn't start out at the base of it all. So let me just share with you a few words from a book that I'll release this coming spring on nothing but the cross cross-cultural. Let me talk about a cross-less generation. Thomas DeWitt Talmadge said this, the mob that hounded Christ from Jerusalem to the place of the skull has never been dispersed, but is augmenting yet today as many of the learned men of the world and the great men of the world come out from their studies and from their laboratories and their palaces and cry as they of old, away with this man, away with him. Heavily armed and wearing the uniform of the Polish army, soldiers fan out across the Masovian province in eastern Poland. It is March of 1984. It is George Orwell's prophesied year of dictatorial mind control by the all-powerful state. It's cold, but winter is just about to lose its icy grip on communist-controlled, Soviet-dominated Poland. On this morning, a godless government endeavors to tighten its grip on the minds of a generation of Poles. Now, these soldiers, armed in uniform, they do not march to confront an invading enemy. That's not their purpose. They're headed for the district's elementary schools. They are marching in staunch order to the middle schools of Poland with their weapons in their hands. They are not confronting some ferocious invading army. No, sir, they are headed to the high school. They have very, very, very specific orders in hand. Pull down every cross from every classroom and every wall 
and every door in this province. The order has come directly from the Polish prime minister who is in the middle of a campaign to purge Poland's public places of the vestiges of Christianity. The government buildings had been the first and then the factories and the hospitals and now the army is off arms in hand to invade those rebellious elementary schools. If the stubborn Polish people are ever going to be purged of their superstitions. Oh, I'm coming. If they're ever to be purged of their superstitions and molded into good atheistic Soviet men and women, it is vital to begin with the impressionable minds of children. So the schools are next. The national campaign to strip Poland's children of any vestige of faith is beginning in the Masovian province. There, crucifixes have held always places of high regard on the walls of classrooms and the hallways in this deeply Catholic nation. Most of the crosses removed on that day had been hanging in place for 60 years. Some, some for over 100 years. We've got some in America been hanging around for 200 years. They're on their way out too. Soldiers' boots echo down the school hallways and leather-gloved hands yank countless crucifixes from countless walls and haul them to waiting trash trucks. Yet in each violated spot, on each endeavor, desecrated wall, <laughs> something remains behind offering silent testimony to what is now missing. On every time-weathered, soot-darkened wall is the unmistakable, bright outline of where a cross once hung. Oh, the government could remove the cross, but the government was powerless to remove the evidence that one had once hung there. In 21st century America, we've been removing our crosses as well. In recent decades, the highest court of the land, the United States Supreme Court's twisted understanding of the statement separation of church and state has brought about the forced removal of most physical crosses from all public places, public squares, city seals, where they've been displayed for decade after decade without any problem. Harmlessly, the crosses hung there without incident. But I'm wondering about our 
private places too. I, I wonder in my quiet times about our homes. I wonder about our businesses. I certainly am made to wonder about our churches. The cross is disappearing there as well, isn't it? We're a postmodern culture, we're told. Furthermore, the last thing anyone in polite society would ever want to do is to offend the delicate sensibilities of a skeptic or an agnostic. The Taoist symbol depicting the supposed counterbalancing forces of yin and yang is proudly displayed everywhere. Chubby golden Buddhas seem not to be offensive. They're seen everywhere. And I'm not just talking about your local Asian restaurant domain. I, the boldest of the followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth may at times be found to display the ichthus fish on their car. But the cross, the cross, oh, the cross seems to hold a special and singular power to offend. How offensive. No, but surely in our churches, surely, surely in our houses of worship built upon the rock of the confession that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the, the gathering places of those who've been redeemed by the blood of Calvary's crucified lamb. Surely here we'll find a bastion where the cross is treasured, where it is honored through display and proclamation. Well, if only that were the case. So I say, with a broken heart and the indignation which is proper to my outrage, that the modern church seems to hold the cross as something so very old school. <laughs> It is said, the cross, it's just so mm, church-y. Everybody say, church-y. Church we, 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 we recoil at the thought of anything being traditional or church-y. So, for churches, I might parenthetically insert, unlike this one, for churches that seem to have a need to appeal to an image-conscious, skinny suit, public, holding the cross high, we're told, well, that's just poor marketing. That's just simply bad marketing. The cross is disappearing from our cityscapes. The cross is disappearing from our church platforms. 
but in a broader, pro more profound and more troubling sense, we, we've been voluntarily removing it from our hearts silently, steadily, stealthily, without fanfare, without debate. We've slipped the cross out of our preaching. We have, we have whisked it off of the platform of our singing and we have eradicated it from our daily thinking and living. It's true, the cross is missing, but just as those Polish lecture halls found out, just as those classrooms displayed a cross-shaped shadow void remains to tell the story that once a cross hung here in a, in a very, in a very real sense, we become the midwife to a crossless generation of born again believers. And the church's waning influence in our dark and darkening society parallels the removal of the cross from the center of our message and the center peace of our lives. So many today are happy to embrace Jesus the teacher. Pastor Robert, Jesus the teacher. You know the one. The bringer of peaceable platitudes and lovely beatitudes about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and suffering the little children. They find nothing offensive in that kind of Jesus at all. Even Jesus the prophet seems welcome at the long, long table of America's growing pantheon of gods and religious icons, particularly when his prophetic pronouncements seem to call for the idolatrous creation of a God who sanctions whatever lifestyle we choose to live. But the admirers of Jesus the teacher and the and the admirers of Jesus the prophet shrink back in abject horror and embarrassment from Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of a waiting, dying world, spat upon, bolted to a tree, writhing in his own blood. No, 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 no. Calvary is way too ugly. It's too shame-soaked. It is grotesque in its images and therefore our imaginations. It is overwhelming in its implications about the subject that we all have in common but nobody wants to talk about it. It brings our consciousness to the stark reminder that in sin did my mother conceive me. cross makes us conscious far too much of the severe demands of cosmic justice too troubling to ponder but for a moment no sir 
You can keep your shattered, bleeding, wheezing, sighing, crying, dying Jesus of the cross, the spirit of the age says to us. If we must have a Jesus, and preferably we wouldn't, but if we must, we'll take the pretty, flowing-haired, smiling children on your lap, illustrated Sunday school version, please. So a generation silently slips the cross down from its conspicuous hook on the wall of its theology. More pleasant, less demanding images are now found hanging in its place. So a stream of new books, why there are probably several on your shelves, new books and newfangled preachers call for a reimagining of the cross, for a reinterpretation of the meaning of the cross, for a hmm, more educated rethinking of the message of the cross. And in the weeks to come, we'll explore every one of those false teachings. We will pull back the veil of the false assertions in the unfailing light of God's inerrant, infallible word. And we'll bring it full face in the illuminating light and radiance of the cross itself. These distortions, you know me. These misappropriations, if you will, of the cross's earth-shaking significance must not be allowed to go unanswered. So turn in next week, you false prophets and cross haters and blood deniers. You who say, I am a liberal in theology, therefore I do not believe in the virgin birth nor in the old-fashioned doctrine of substitutionary atonement, nor do I know any intelligent Christian minister who does, excuse me, I may not have a PhD, but this I do know at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there, it was there, it was there by faith. I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. A crossless generation must be, can be, and will be brought back to the base of an old rugged cruel cross and pointed back to the Christ of Calvary, give him praise, give him glory. No, come on, bless it. Ah, I've got a thing to say.
Of course, God's sworn enemy has always despised the teaching of the cross above anything else. For Golgotha, the place of the skull, was the scene, of course, of Satan's complete and final defeat. And that's why any preacher inclined to focus on other topics. Have you noticed that we have become a generation of preacher specialists? We have no longer general practitioners of the faith, but rather specialists. We got the faith guy, the grace guy, the love guy, the mercy guy. When are we going to find us a Bible guy? There's a Bible. I feel like preaching and I know I can't. I want to tell you, I want to tell you that I may not have a PhD, but I do know this, the B-I-B-L-E. I don't want to be a specialist. I don't want to specialize in one sliver of biblical theology. I want to be a whole gospel, well-rounded preacher. How, how, how are you gonna preach heaven without a cross? How, how are you gonna preach happiness without a cross? How, how are you gonna preach forgiveness without a cross? How, how are you gonna preach mercy without a cross? How you're gonna preach grace without a cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and shouted, look and live. Today, the temptation, of course, to, to, you know, to adopt some mode of preaching where the cross of Christ has little place is more powerful than ever. In contrast, you might want to think about a preacher that did pretty well. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was uh, the Apostle Paul. Hear him preach in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and me to the world. Paul didn't shrink back from the cross. He, he didn't seek to reimagine the cross. If so, as, as to fit his own preferred worldview, he, 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 the cross, the cross. Do you understand? It's the hinge point. Of all human history, it is the fulcrum of God's grand, brilliant lever 4,000 years in the crafting that in a single day and a single act pride a fallen world from Satan's soul-killing grasp. It is at the foot of this cross and there alone that we can look with horrified wonder upon the raw ferocity of God's love for fallen humanity. At the same time, if a cross makes an appearance in a town square school program, 
seems to trigger a fainting spell. And three ACLU lawsuits. The church can possibly hope to speak to a lost and hopeless world unless the church first returns to the cross, to its rightful place in the heart and the soul and the centerpiece of our message. That place is front and center. When I finish this thing, I may plant this cross right here and let it shoot up to the sky and hide behind it. If we had some more preachers hiding behind the cross, they wouldn't have to get their petty manny. What is it? What is it? They wouldn't have to get their manny petty, would they? They they wouldn't have to get trimmed and fouled. They they wouldn't care about what they'd be like. They'd be like old Seymour getting behind some peach crates and preaching till the glory of God came down. We got too many gospel superstars. I, I need, I need somebody coming out of the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey saying, ain't nobody paid my way. Without the cross, there'd be no resurrection. There can be no Easter Sunday without the sorrow of Good Friday. I wish I could preach. My time up. My time is up. My time is up. My time is up. I'm doing my best, honey. I'm doing my best. Over the next few weeks, here's what I want to do. I want to inspire you enlighten you enrapture you encourage you strengthen you and help you recalibrate your thinking and put the cross of Jesus Christ at the center where it belongs I want to I want to invite you to an embarkment on an amazing journey A journey to Golgotha. A journey to the place of the skull. A journey up Calvary's mountain. Let me take you on an epic expedition into the heights of spiritual reality where you'll glimpse what most human eyes have never perceived. The cosmic battle that took place in the heavenlies for your soul and the price paid to make you whole and to make you his. Hands on your breast, I am his and he is mine. And all along the way, you'll come to understand that in his death, Jesus purchased a whole lot more for you than a ticket to heaven in the by and by. We already got that part. We do still preach that here. You'll discover seven, shout seven, Seven. glorious, Seven glorious anointings 
The knowledge of those anointings will leave you unwilling to live another single solitary day anywhere beneath your privileges as a son and daughter of the Most High God who is eternally all sufficient. But what of those, what of those confiscated crosses? What of those marching armed soldiers storming into elementary classrooms to rip those damnable crucifixes off the walls lest they infiltrate the minds of those innocent children. One of the schools that was purged of its crosses on that late winter morning in 1984 was a little town in Poland called Garwalin. There soldiers entered the main school building, removed seven large crucifixes, about six feet tall each of them were. They had hung on the walls of that school since 1920. As dawn broke the following morning, the students arrived back in their classrooms to find new crosses on each of those walls, occupying the spots where the old ones had once been. Under the cover and secrecy of a moonless, dark winter night, their parents had stealthily entered the building and replaced those crosses using crosses they'd taken from their homes. So the drama played itself out again. In came the marching Polish army. Crosses were ripped from walls again and bare walls testified silently of their own violation with bright cross-shaped outlines. The next day, after On that second day, the soldiers had ripped the crucifixes down again. 400 students showed up at that elementary school to protest. They were carrying crude little crosses. Some of them made of sticks and twigs. Some of them made from chicken crate wood and chicken wire. And crude as they may have been, they were crosses. And they stood for something. They were held together with those little bits of string. In came the heavily armed riot police driving those cross-bearing children into the cold city streets. And so the children, to a child with no direction given them, lifted their crosses above their heads and marched to a nearby church where they found themselves joined by 2,500 
other school students from that city who had simultaneously at the direction of the Holy Spirit gotten up from their classroom seats and marched to that little church to stand with those two. And together they began singing hymns celebrating their crucified Savior. So the soldiers encircled the church. But they couldn't get the whole business shut down until here came CNN, Fox News, cameras in hand. Instantly, images of thousands of children singing, holding up crosses above their heads, were appearing on the front page of every newspaper and on the lead story of every television news outlet in the world. Within five years, Poland would have its first free and fair elections. A year later, Lech Walesa, the father of the Solidarity Movement, would rise to the presidency, ending Poland's long, dark night of totalitarianism. Of course, the Solidarity Movement was already gathering force for change. The fuse of that general revolution had been ignited in 1979 when a Polish Catholic man made a nine-day pilgrimage back to his native Poland. You might remember him. He had a new title, Pope John Paul II. There he preached a history-shaking sermon before one million Polish citizens assembled in Warsaw's Victory Square on June the 2nd. The throng responded with a 14-minute standing, rousing ovation of applause that simultaneously morphed into congregational singing of one million voices. With one voice they sang, Christ. I Sorry, right, Julie. Thank you, honey. Christ conquers. Shout it. Shout it again. I want to hear it like it was one million. Shout Christ conquers. Christ reigns. Christ governs. Five years later, the showdown over the crosses at Garlowen brought television cameras that broadcast to a watching world the words of a courageous local priest who addressed the weeping children in that church that day. They heard him say, there is no Poland without a cross. May I shout tonight, there is no triumphant culture transforming Christianity without the cross. We stand tonight at an intersection. We stand at a literal crossroads of history where the cross has lost its centrality. Quietly, 
imperceptibly hands have removed the cross from its rightful place in our thinking and our praying and our loving and our serving and yet where it once hung there remains an unmistakable bright outline marking the spot modern theologians have done their best to remove that cross but they cannot erase the evidence of where it once hung just as in those Polish classrooms a cross shaped vacuum remains and that void tells us precisely where a cross needs to be placed again. Let's rediscover the power, the majesty, the beauty of the cross of Christ. Let's learn anew how to appropriate its power. And so here begins a journey where most journeys begin at an intersection. The question is very simply, which way will you go? Let me challenge you tonight to come to the intersection of fear and faith. Come to the intersection of hopelessness and hope. Come to the intersection of pain and healing. Come to the intersection of sin and salvation. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there. By faith I received my sight. And now, when I don't have a dollar to change, and now, when my spouse walks out and says they'll never be back, and now, when I got nowhere left to turn, and now, I'm happy all the day. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I want to invite you to tell someone in your life about the podcast. Hope you'll do it today. Head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Share it on your social networks for me. Really helps me get the word out. I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. No easier way for me to minister to you every day and throughout the day and for us to join together in faith as God moves in and through your life. You can find links to all my pages at rodparsley.com. God bless you now, and I hope you'll listen again soon.